I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio my next guest, George Caribbean, who is a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Payment Sense. George, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to just give a little bit of background. George is a MBA graduate from 1993, although that was the year I got to Wharton, so I think it's highly unlikely you took a class from me. Is that right? Un- unfortunately not, yes. <laughs> uh, but I've gotten to know George because he serves on the advisory board for Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship and happens to be on campus for board meetings, so I took this opportunity to sit down and and share some of George's really interesting story. So let's start with the beginning. So tell me where you, you were born and, and where you grew up and a little bit about your early life. Sure. I, I uh, uh, was born in uh, London, uh, but that was purely for, for medical reasons because my parents lost their first child uh, in Ethiopia, which is where I grew up. Um, I spent uh, most of my childhood there uh, until at some point there was a communist revolution. Uh, my father was imprisoned. My, uh, I remember being 12 years old, picking up the phone around noon, and my father saying, uh, son, I'm in prison. I don't know for how long. And um, uh, you're now head of the family. And I can tell you that was one job I didn't want. But, uh, but it, it, it toughens you up. And so I was lucky that uh, an uncle from the US, who's another entrepreneur, uh, based in Texas, came down, picked us up, took us to Texas, and and that's that became the rest. I've been going back and forth to Ethiopia and uh, uh, the U.S., Ethiopia, and I've been living in in Europe for the last twenty uh, uh, something years, and so it's. It's a bit of a mixed bag where yeah. I'm from. Well, that's why I asked, because mm-hmm. I knew you had such an interesting background. Just to dig in a little more, what, what was your father doing? Was your father in business in Ethiopia? He was a businessman. He's, he's of Armenian origin, mm-hmm. and the Ethiopian emperor at the time was, was very good to Armenians. Mm-hmm. He, he flew uh, uh, to Jerusalem and uh, stopped by the Armenian quarter in Jerusalem, and he felt sorry for uh, a lot of the orphans from the genocide that were there. And he took 40 back with him to, the, to his country. Wow. And they became his orchestra. And they, one of them wrote the national anthem of Ethiopia at the you time. You mean literally his orchestra? Literally. Wow. Literally. And yeah. a lot of Armenians heard about this. And my, my parents, my, grand, my grandparents were, uh, or great-grandparents were genocide survivors. Uh, they were in Greece, in Egypt, uh, where they'd immigrated, and then one of them immigrated to Ethiopia. Wow, so you're is... actually third generation yeah. Ethiopian. Yeah. yeah. And what kind of business was your father in? Uh, he was a retailer of curtains and carpets, mm-hmm. um, and he had, a, at some point, they stopped imports. Uh, he's a pretty resourceful guy. Yeah. Um, and he uh, started a cottage industry where he was making textiles uh, with old factories that he had bought back from the the state. Wow. And those are traditional Armenian businesses, right? So it sort of made sense as a connection to Armenia or not? Not, not, not really. really. Not yeah. really. My, my grandfather moved to Ethiopia, did a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, initially, he was uh, uh, 
in in the working for the emperor's court uh, mm-hmm. with uh, embroidery of their uh, military uh, regalia, and uh, and then he went to a small town called Dessier, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, and decided to convince the people there that that, that this this town was being um, invaded by bandits, mm-hmm. and he convinced the elders of the town that, hey, you should fight back. And he brought them guns wow. and taught them how to use it, and they defended themselves. And so they gave him land and wanted him to immigrate there. So he he and his family were the first foreigners living in this town. They were the first one to, ones to bring electricity, so he had a general store. Mm-hmm. So he, these are early early time entrepreneurs who yeah. just found ways to survive. Yeah. So and and what about your early education? So you were in middle school roughly before you left Ethiopia. And were you in in an international school where what prepared you I suppose to to go to college in the US? I think is the the, the, the sequence was I went to Armenian school first. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went to French school, then I went to a British school. I was mm-hmm. 10 years old. I didn't speak a word of English. Um, and and then I was in the English school when, when I, I, had, I left the country. Yeah. Went to Texas for a year, then went back to the American school in Ethiopia mm-hmm. for, for three years, uh, and then finished high school back in Texas, final year. In fact, I was, I was in the same uh, computer class uh, at Memorial High School in Houston, Texas, uh, with Michael Dell. <laughs> wow, <laughs> literally the same class. Literally, the, it was it was the first time they they had offered computer science. Yeah. This is when the uh, this uh, the Apple IIe had just come out, wow. um, and uh, we were programming on the Commodore, and it was it was early days. Yeah, what do you have an impression of Michael Dell from those years? Uh, he's a fighter. Yeah. Even back then, he yeah. was. He was very entrepreneurial even back then. I, I'm, we weren't close, but yeah. I, can t- I, I knew about him. Uh, he would sell, uh, he, he would mail order car stereos and sell them to uh, students who wanted to refit the car stereos in their car. Uh, so it's, it's, he was entrepreneurial even yeah. back then. Wow, wow. Were you entrepreneurial? I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I applied to Wharton because I wanted to become an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and for the wrong reasons. Because I thought if I failed as an entrepreneur, I would have, uh, I would be able to uh, uh, use my my education to find a corporate job, and that was uh, that was not the way it played out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wharton has helped me out incredibly, mm-hmm. much more than I ever imagined. Uh, both the network and what I learned, uh, yeah. it stays with you forever, and, and 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 it continues. It doesn't end there. Well, let's go back to to college. So you you went to college at UT Austin, is that right? That's correct. And studied what? I I studied at the time. It was called data processing. Mm-hmm. It was, I took a lot of computer science courses as well. So I was short of a computer science degree, but. Uh, uh, did a lot of data processing slash, you know, languages, mm-hmm. uh, Pascal, COBOL, uh, C uh, back then, um, uh, database uh, management, et cetera. And, um, but for me, University of Texas was more a cultural, uh, it was 
a cultural education more so than intellectual. Uh, my my best memories of it was were going to blues bars almost every night, yeah. seeing people like Stevie Ray Vaughan um, and uh, some, some of the, the, the greatest uh, blues musicians around. Uh, that and uh, uh, film, uh, uh, taking a lot of film classes, taking a lot of uh, just being able to have that flexibility to do things that were interesting mm -hmm. uh, in addition to uh, a lot of computer science electives. Uh, when you when you graduated from college, do you remember how you envisioned how your career might play out? I always knew I would be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, I always looked for the angle. Um, when I, in, in my f very first job, I only, I worked for EDS for something like nine months. Mm -hmm. But before starting that job, uh, I worked the summer for a startup. Uh, and it's just the, the energy, the, the pay was a lot less. Mm -hmm. But the energy was something that when I went to a big corporate, I really missed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I went back there in the end. So it was supposed to be just a summer job. They couldn't afford to do much more with me. Um, and I spent five years there as a as a an engineer at the beginning, so mm -hmm. I, I wrote uh, some code. I did some marketing, uh, and in the end, supported the the founder of the business uh, in going to uh, big customers uh, around the world. Yeah, and learned a lot. Yeah, you know, in our in our board meeting this morning, we were talking about this distinction between starters and joiners. And when you got out of college, you were a joiner, right? That wasn't your business. But you you think of it as an entrepreneurial experience. Say a little bit more about that, because I'd like to encourage more people to take that path. Yeah, I never thought about that. I was always on the lookout for um, the opportunity. Mm -hmm. In fact, even when I was working there, one of our customers was uh, uh, a, a government agency that that uh, worked on software for submarines, so picking up sonar, and I. I thought, why couldn't we use some, a very basic form of that technology for an alarm system for swimming pools, hmm. for children falling in, and, uh, and therefore, and I, I imagine there's products like that out there today, but uh, I actually tried to, to do something with that. Um, but in reality, it would have been a big mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, so by accident, I was a joiner, and it was the right thing to do. I had a lot to learn. Yeah, say more. Why, why would it have been a mistake? Because we, I think we're in a transition from where the conventional wisdom to young people was always go learn on someone else's dime. And increasingly we're seeing students start out right out of school. So help, help, help our listeners think through that, that trade-off. Yeah. I, th I think, well, for one thing, learning within, uh, on, on somebody else's dime, especially if it's an entrepreneurial Business, which mm -hmm. means you you have to take uh, you you're going to have to make some sacrifices in pay and uh, maybe start at the bottom, maybe maybe do things that were below you. Yeah. Uh, when when you're ten people on a limited budget in a startup, it's it's a very different world. Uh, uh, or if you're in a big corporate, it's again a very different world because you're pigeonholed into uh, an area and uh, but you learn a lot if mm -hmm. it's in the right place uh, in both cases. Um, the the danger is that you stay there too long. Yeah, uh, and 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 then 
an entrepreneur at the end of the day has to be able to walk up to the edge of that cliff uh, and to say, I can fly mm-hmm. and I'm going to jump even though uh, technically I'm going to fall at you know, the, the bankers of this world or the consultants will walk up to the same cliff and say, if I jump, I'm going to fall at this speed. I'm going to crash at, at this force. Uh, this doesn't stack up. I'd, I'd, I'll sit on the sidelines and see what happens when other people jump, and maybe we'll charge them money for for the advice. Um, as an entrepreneur, it's 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 this incredible blind belief that you're going to succeed, that yeah. you're going to get lucky, that the winds of chance are going to pick you up, that you're going to flap like crazy to stay afloat. Um, and somehow you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you did five years. What was that company's name? Omnicom. Omnicom. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay. So it you- went bust. It went bust. Yeah. Did you get to watch it go bust? I was I was uh, out of Wharton when it went bust, and okay. and the the sad thing there was, uh, you know, there's a great lesson there yeah. I learned, which was Omnicomp was bigger than Silicon Graphics when it started. It was in the same space, computer graphic, computer graphics yeah. with lots of accelerators. Yeah. All, back then, the only way you could make things fast was to do it in hardware. Yeah. Uh, Today, it's it's a lot of what we did for you know, half a million dollar products. You 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 have on a chip on a on, on a phone mm-hmm. today. Uh, so it's it's the world has changed. So so yeah. So what Omnicomp did that was wrong was, uh, as the market developed, they tried to ho- and it splintered into many different fields. So computer yeah. graphics became twelve bit graphics for medical imaging. Mm-hmm. It became fast vector graphics for uh, either gaming or back then it was really military applications. And so you had all these you had true color uh, mm-hmm. imaging. So they tried to do everything and hold on to the entire market as it splintered. And what happened is uh, their products uh, were too thin. And eventually they they were good at nothing. Interesting. Uh, and, and the Silicon Graphics punched through in what yeah. they did best. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You know, when we get into payment sense, I want to circle back and ask you about your decision making on exactly that that question because it's a great question as you scale how you how you do that, um, George. So you Omnicomp and then and then did you go right to Wharton from there? I went to Wharton right after Omnicomp again for the wrong reasons. Uh, yes, articulate but, that a little bit better because yeah. you described always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You'd done five years in an entrepreneurial setting. One could have said, I'm ready just to go now. I'm ready to jump off the cliff. Why was business school the right transition strategy? Or it, or why it, did you think it, it was? It was an irrational fear. Uh, I thought that I, I would need to uh, have a backup plan mm-hmm. because if I did fall, uh, if I crashed and burned, I couldn't get back up again, which, yeah. is, which is not true. Yeah. When you have very little or nothing you have nothing to lose uh, i think it's that's in a famous rock and roll song <laughs> <laughs> um nothing ain't worth much but it's free uh, yeah or something like that yeah <laughs> we'll see if dion can find it for us for the for the break <laughs> the uh the um in, interesting because today the advice i often give young entrepreneurs or people coming to wharton is it's actually a really good place to start a business, a really good place to make the transition. But that wasn't true in 1991. Absolutely. Yeah. What yeah. you say is absolutely true. Again, I was very lucky that I went to Wharton 
mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that it was for the wrong reasons. Ah, I see. Uh, and and uh, back then, you went to Wharton because you wanted to go into banking right. or consulting. And if you weren't in one of those two areas, you were a loser back yeah. then. Uh, and and I I love coming back to campus mm-hmm. and and seeing uh, the number of students. These are some of the brightest people on the planet. Uh, put so much energy into into entrepreneurship, whether it's scale scale up entrepreneurship, right. uh, going into some of the, the the biggest companies in 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 the world, and and playing a role in in, in Growing them at, at rates that you have to be entrepreneurial to do, uh, or whether it's their startups. Yeah, George, what came next? So I worked after Wharton. I worked for Honeywell mm-hmm. for a number of years. That was very good experience. I, I bought companies. I ran business units uh, in different parts of the world. I, I worked for them in Amsterdam and Brussels and Dubai, Abu Dhabi. Uh, and uh, Prague, and um, and that was a fantastic experience in being able to buy, build businesses that were where, where they gave me the the freedom to 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 to, to do that. Yeah, uh, very entrepreneurial within a big company, uh, and and these were in markets that were not non-core markets, so yeah. there was not much to lose, and and. And that was a, a fan, for me fan, a fantastic continuation of, of, of the learning that that uh, I've used a lot of what I've learned in in my life uh, as as an entrepreneur. And I've after that I worked for a uh, a very entrepreneurial uh, a startup called Inet Technologies. Mm-hmm. They were in the telecom space, and they ha- they built a technology that was surveillance of the telephone network that was game-changing. Mm-hmm. And what I learned there was how luck plays a big role sometimes. And this was a, a product that was, in, from an engineering perspective, a fantastic product. But it happened to hit the market at the right time for reasons that were on no one's radar. Hmm. Uh, deregulation of the telecoms market forced big players to open up their networks and interconnect with other uh, players. And um, and so I built their European business. It was a fantastic run. It was mm-hmm. right time, right place. Yeah. I mean, but, but George, now I'm going to push yeah. you. You Since you were a kid, you wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, and then you did five years working for somebody else. Then you did business school. And then you did more working for somebody else. Yeah. The whole time were you thinking, I'm just doing my time? I was thinking, I'm looking for something. Yeah. And uh, I'm learning a lot while I yeah. do this. And and by the way, the the INET technologies, I was prepared to make that my last job. I would mm-hmm. wake up uh, in in a European city uh, in a hotel, and the first thoughts in my head were, "Where am I?" I I was working so hard, and and it was a fantastic growth. We built a, a, a fabulous business in a two year period. And there, I was prepared to make it my last job, but I didn't. I, I didn't get the options that I thought I deserved. Ah. And um, the everything I'd learned at Wharton told me uh, 
that because uh, I met with the founders and they said, well, your options are worth a lot more than you think and therefore uh, you will reach your goal uh, with what we've given you already. Mm. And everything I'd learned at Wharton told me this doesn't stack up. Yeah. And, and I was right. It was worth actually a lot less than what even I thought they mm. were worth in the end. And so um, uh, that's where I left to start up my first business uh, called Your Office in the middle of the dot-com boom. And that was quite a trip. I, I lived through you know, living on credit cards, changing my lifestyle completely, moving into a basement flat. Um, I couldn't sleep at night. Mm -hmm. I was so stressed out. Mm -hmm. I, I did Bikram yoga. I did meditation. I, wow. I, I, I was pulling at straws. I was, I was so stressed out I couldn't sleep. And I did just not knowing how you're going to make payroll in two weeks is, is an incredibly stressful thing. Now, was the reality of entrepreneurship when it's all on you quite different from what you had hoped for and what you had anticipated your whole life leading up to that? It's a lot more lonely, and when you're when you're falling and and just creating that self belief that it's going to work, I'm mm -hmm. going to find a way is is a is a very very painful mm -hmm. uh, experience. Although if you make it through, uh, having gone through that, uh, I think uh, makes you a different person. Yeah. What happened to your office? So your office. Um, all of its competitors went bust, mm -hmm. had much more money than we did. In 2001, uh, when things came is, unglued. Yeah, in, yeah. Two, in 2000, people were breaking down my doors to invest in yeah. the business. Uh, I put friends and family money in, uh, my own money in. We built the tech, uh, a tech prototype. We went to market, did market testing, and I thought that by putting off the VCs to a point where we had market tested and tech prototype, right. we would uh, have less dilution. The opposite happened because the bottom fell out of the market. I see. And overnight, I couldn't, the money that was supposed to last us three months lasted us about a year. Yeah. So it was very, very difficult. But we survived. Um, and ultimately, it comes, and this is a time when people don't realize this. I right. launched your office when Amazon's homepage took 17 seconds to download. Whoa. Amazon survived in spite of that. That's, yeah. that's incredible. People forget that. Right. It was a different world. It was dial-up. Our homepage took closer to 30 seconds mm -hmm. to download, and we still managed to build a business. Yeah. This was an internet retail business. Mm -hmm. uh, the business has since then morphed. Um, it now also uh, is a platform uh, allowing small dealers to, it's a SaaS-based system that allows small dealers to sell their office products. Mm -hmm. so it's a, it became the number three online office products company in the UK, mm -hmm. but more important than that, it's now a platform for all the others, a long tail of small dealers Interesting. that can't survive against the big players. Yeah. So, so that, ultimately, that ultimately yeah. successful. Successful still runs. Yeah. I still chair the board. Yeah. It doesn't take up much of my time. It's There's a management team there. Yeah. There's a PE investor yeah. on board. Uh, then I was lucky with your office that um, deregulation happened in the UK mm -hmm. of the telco business uh, sector. And what we did was uh, uh, I was incredibly, my co-founders and I were able to get the uh, 
VC in your office to accept us starting another business. Yeah. Provided we didn't take any money out of the business. You know, I, w- I want to pause you right there because I want to ask about this critical transition I see a lot of entrepreneurs face, which is you get the thing to more or less be working, but it isn't everything you've hoped for in life. And how do you decide whether you stick that out, you give it a good home, you walk away, you go on to the next thing? How do you think through that decision? It's with with your office and Excellent and Telecom, which was the next one, it was quite easy because deregulation happened mm-hmm. where the regulator and I knew consulting companies that were consulting Ofcom, the the um, the regulator, and they forced the incumbent BT, British Telecom, to offer newcomers, switchless newcomers, a uh, they they would need to allow the newcomers to discount. 30% to 40% off of BT's price and mm. still make a 30% gross margin. Wow. So it was it was, it was free entry into the market and I knew I, I had to do it. I was in telco before. I had I understood the business. So this was the wave you'd been waiting for. It was it, yeah. and it came from nowhere. Yeah. Unexpectedly and I was lucky, very lucky that the the investor at the time uh, allowed me to do that, and they, their only condition was continue growing the business at the same rate, mm-hmm. and no problem. But if it slows down, you're back in. Hmm. And so we hired a CEO, and that became my model. By the way, mm-hmm. we hired a CEO. I went on to build with my two co-founders. In fact, one of them was my brother, who also went to Wharton, Excellent oh. uh, Telecom, uh, and I exited after four years. That was a an incredible run where. The wind was behind your back. You could trip, fall. You could be sloppy. It would pick you right back up. So it was, it was basically licensed to make money. But when things are easy, mm-hmm. overnight you have competitors coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so we had overnight two hundred competitors. So you were basically reselling British Telecoms, infra- te- telecom services. Very okay. simply, it was yeah. reselling, uh, but doing the billing and the customer service. So we mm-hmm. were picking up. Uh, what's called call detail records, mm-hmm. and then you bill. And, and the way we started that was we outsourced everything except for the sales and marketing. Mm. And bit by bit, we brought everything in-house. So we brought in the service, we brought in the billing, we brought in, uh, and in the end, uh, it, it, was, it became one of the fastest growing com- 100 fastest growing companies in the UK. Um, and I sold, uh, and I was, this should have been one of the, happiest moments in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run this thing for four years. I get out, good good money. In fact, the deal was financed by an Icelandic bank that went bust uh, a couple of months later. So it was, it was right on the edge. Um, but PE got in, and I'm so happy that two PEs have successively made a lot of money on multiple rounds of the business. And seeing that legacy yeah. is, is fantastic. Uh, well, how'd you know... This is another case of picking a time to make a transition. How did you know it was an exit? It was a liquidity event. Was that the reason you were out at that point? No. I, my two business partners remained. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was my brother, a, mm-hmm. another ex, ex Wharton 96, and, and uh, another friend. Uh, but uh, no, it was I, – I had l- – heard someone speak many years before when I was at University of Texas. I was on a committee that brought speakers to the campus. Ah. Uh, and uh, amongst them were, were 
Steve Jobs, who I looked up to a lot for many years. But there was a, a guy who built, a, a, he made a fortune off the club business. He built clubs, uh, nightclubs. And I was, it really got to me, uh, the fact that he said, the way you make money in clubs is you sell before you hit the peak. And you don't know where the peak is. And people get too greedy and they mm -hmm. wait too long. And uh, I always thought this, this, this cannot last. Uh, and I have no idea where the peak is because it's driven by deregulation. Okay, you have to be, we were number one or number two out of 200 new entrants. So mm -hmm. it was hard work. We did well. But, uh, but the ground would shift on us. I, I knew that would happen. And I probably went way too early. Yeah. But it allowed me to build another great company yeah. with all the learnings. All right. So what came next? Next came Payment Sense. And Payment Sense was, I get a call within two weeks of selling Excellent Telecom. I've told my wife, you know, we've sacrificed for a long time. We're going to go travel the world. We'll hang out in Sydney for a while, do some surfing. I don't know how to surf. I windsurf, but I've always wanted to surf. And... Um, said, we'll just hang out for a year or two and do nothing. And this is payback time. And within days of selling the business, I get a call from an old friend of mine who sold his business six months before, bought a house on an island in Denmark, got bored, uh, and wants to get back in the game. And he calls me up and says, there's a conference in Vegas. Would you like to go? I thought, Vegas sounds great. Let's go. And... Uh, heard Vegas more than conference <laughs> and uh, and it was the conference on called the ETA conference the electronic uh, transactions association conference which is about card processing mm -hmm. and it should have been one of the happiest moments in my life I was very depressed because I was walking around this conference going to workshops and so on and I realized I had signed up a hundred thousand customers in the wrong industry by the way, I've learned something with each of my businesses. Yeah. With your office, I learned just because you, it, it was a retail business, mm -hmm. just because you sign up a customer doesn't mean they're your customer. You have to fight for every order. Mm -hmm. And it takes about 10 orders to have an 80% chance that they come back again. So even after 10 orders, you're not guaranteed. Wow. So I knew after that I wanted a business that was uh, where you ACH the customer every month, where it was recurring revenue. Yeah. And and with Excel uh, and Telecom, it was recurring. Yeah. Here I learned there's one more element I've completely missed, which is uh, lifetime value of the customer is also important. <laughs> uh, it's more than just acquisition cost. Yeah. And so um, this was a customer that had anywhere from five to ten times the lifetime value of the uh, my first business. Okay, and, and say a little bit about what the payments business is as a category. Yeah. It's, our customers are merchants mm -hmm. and they use a terminal or online mm -hmm. uh, a, uh, a shopping cart to to transact via credit cards now if i i thought you were going to say something different about the vegas uh, uh, conference because i have been a customer of these services and various entrepreneurial things i've done and i thought you were going to say I was depressed because this is the most backward industry, backward and Byzantine industry I've ever encountered. Was that not your reaction? No, I was depressed for exactly that reason. Yeah. Uh, that uh, I had built a business, two businesses 
in the wrong sector. Meaning when, too competitive too, and not big enough lifetime value. Right. Yeah. And here was an industry where a lot of these people are backwards. And by the way, the U.S. is 10 years ahead of Europe. No so way. I'm not kidding. Wow. Uh, and everyone on, on the show floor that we visited and every workshop I took made me feel, I've got the customers. I've just sold them the wrong thing. Yeah. And so we sat. It was 4 a.m., in the uh, Venetian hotel, mm-hmm. been a, there many times. There's a courtyard. You've probably <laughs> yeah, seen it. Yeah, and there's pump no oxygen, sun. There's, yeah, exactly. The fake sun. Fake yeah. sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my business partner, I had a moment where I'm shaking my head, thinking you, you know, you, you knew this was going to happen. There uh, goes, there goes Sydney. In and other words. and yeah. Yeah, yeah, the most difficult thing was, what am I going to tell my wife? Yeah. <laughs> Our next stop was uh, we went to Boston, mm-hmm. and the guy who built the technology for for my first two businesses, uh, was we got him excited about it, and we whiteboarded the system. Uh, we called it Mothership, yeah. Led Zeppelin-inspired name. And uh, we, uh, we ended up whiteboarding this, our, our technology platform, and we spent, this time we did things differently. We sat in that courtyard, and I said, I'll do it, but we need a manifesto. Mm. We need to stick to the manifesto. And this was at the time when Lars von Trier, the, the, the um, film um, director, had come up with this manifesto for film. So manifestos were very much in. Hmm. And we said, okay, we're going to use our own money, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, we're going to test and pilot everything. Three, technology is going to be at the core of what we do. Mm-hmm. And we know exactly what to build mm-hmm. this time around. Uh, we're going to hire a head of HR as our first hire. In the past, we've always been... The HR person was yeah. us. Yeah. And so people were going to be at the center of everything we do in tech. And we built the perfect company with Payments Apps. Wow. What was the big idea, or was there a big idea, around the product offer itself? Or was that sort of incidental? That was sort of obvious. I, I wish I could tell you yeah. for any business that um, the business plan is the way it played out. Mm. I, th- I thought third time around, I know exactly what we need to do. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had several pivots. Uh, one of them, uh, I, this is, we're writing our own checks into the business. And yeah. We're burning through cash. Okay, but George, let me interrupt you just a second. Before the pivot, when you're in the courtyard of the Venetian yeah. and you see the opportunity, what is the essence of the opportunity? Is it a new, is it a differentiated product or was it a differentiated delivery model? What was different about it? This is a market where, uh, that's been served by the banks. Yeah. The banks are arrogant. They provide a low level of service. Uh, they provide uh, very high prices to, mm-hmm. S- to SMBs. Mm-hmm. Um, to the large corporates, they provide a fantastic service. Because yeah. if they don't, that's a cutthroat business. Uh, they also make very tight margins. But at the at the SMB level, they're they're really screwing their customers. Yeah. So that's you saw it as a segmentation story. You could you could serve the needs of the small and medium sized business that had different needs from the mainstream customer and thus get some advantage there. So yeah. Give them a higher level of service, mm-hmm. uh, and the way we're able to make the economics really work is we use tech to do that with minimal in- human mm-hmm. intervention. So if you can provide a high level of service with minimal human intervention, all of my businesses, by the way, are tech-enabled. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's the differentiator. Without tech, because think about it. In, in each of these cases, 
we're competing with very large incumbents. Right. It's 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 uh, Office Depot uh, and Staples in the first business. Mm-hmm. It was uh, British Telecom right. in the second. Here we're we're competing with First Data, Global Payments, some some right. uh, some of the biggest banks, HSBC, uh, Barclays, uh, etc. And so the only they've got deeper pockets. Mm-hmm. Time works in, to to their advantage because mm-hmm. they can just stop showing up to work and and they they will inertia will just carry them right they've got much bigger brands uh, we only have one advantage over them just one and it's speed mm-hmm. and if we can't exercise speed we're we don't have a business mm-hmm. and speed the only way to make speed work is is people slash culture yeah uh, and tech yeah what what eventually resonated with your target segment what was the offer that eventually resonated it's price, service, and speed. Mm-hmm. We could, for example, speed is, I'll, I'll give you more uh, uh, color on that. It's, we could have someone go live same day or next day, whereas a uh, a bank would take uh, anywhere from three to six weeks. Yeah. And then once they're live, our service levels are much higher. We, we have the amount of information we have at our fingertips is is huge and we empower people within uh, within rules mm-hmm. and it's all automated mm-hmm. so customer calls in they're unhappy we have the, the the service person has the capability to change their price to, yeah. to give them what they want and still see in real time lifetime value of that customer change mm-hmm. so just to in case some of our listeners don't know exactly what payment sense does effectively they sit between the transaction and the credit card for the customer and you get the money and deliver it to the to the merchant is that right so so yeah so the the uh credit card system has on one side has merchants Mm -hmm. and on the other side has consumers Mm -hmm. consumers get cards from issuers banks Right. right the the on on the merchant side you have a, a a waterfall of risks, which yep. Mastercard and Visa, uh, and this is a big part of what Mastercard and Visa do. By the way, mm-hmm. is they handle exceptions. It's the the technology of making a payment flow through is easy. It's what happens when you've got to return a product. What happens when there's a dispute, and all of that, uh, the, or if you don't use chip and pin and you mm-hmm. swipe and you all of all of the risks and the rules around that. Uh, are are very established, mm-hmm. and and so what we do is we allow the merchant to accept cards, and when they accept cards, the value chain is a piece of the, there's a cost to doing that, mm-hmm. and a piece of that goes to Visa, very small, mm-hmm. it's small basis points, uh, and and an, an, another chunk goes to the card issuer, believe it or not, hmm. so the issuing bank, uh, and then the processor makes a cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ride the rails of the processors, uh, and then and then there's us. We make a a chunk out of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, if we have time, I, well, I might as well just ask it. This is what's always perplexed me: why there need to be four players in that transaction, and why isn't there just well? Why are I, I can see why there might need to be two players. The an intermediary and the issuing bank, but there are all these layers. Isn't that somewhat convoluted as an industry and thus vulnerable to disruption? You know, you can say that about 
any parts of the payments world. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got two other startups yeah. that I've started. One, one is Judo Payments, which is a mobile payments business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that creates another layer within yeah. the mobile space. What it does is it provides security and it provides ease of use, mm-hmm. so better customer experience. And and finally, the, the, the fifth startup, uh, which is growing phenomenally fast, is a company called Capital on Tap. It's an mm-hmm. alternative lending business. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's doing what the banks do. It lends money. It rides on the rails of the banks. You might say, why do you, why is there a need for another player mm-hmm. in the mix? Um, and uh, again, it's using tech in, in both cases. Uh, in the case of, especially with uh, Capital on Tap, it's, it's phenomenal what we can do with machine learning, uh, how we can in real time assess the credit of a business that's pulling down uh credit facilities in real time mm-hmm. on a need basis mm. to, 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 to fund working capital. Um, technology, data, people, you put those three together, you, you can work magic. Mm-hmm. And so Payment Sense is, is not much different. Uh, for example, one of our products allows you to integrate the terminal with an EPOS system, with the cash register mm-hmm. and the system that drives it. That doesn't exist in Europe, hardly. Mm. So by doing that, you now provide a, a single point of entry for the amount, so there's less mistakes. So you're not entering the amount to be paid on the on the cash register system and on the terminal. You have reconciliation at the end of the day, so you you save money there. You save time, uh, and if it's if you're paying at the table, it's a single trip to the table. So if you, you might need more terminals, one for each waiter. But at the end of the day, they can take payment at the table and print the receipt at the table on the terminal. Mm-hmm. It's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, but it is another layer. So back to your question. All of these create layers, but as long as you have tech, and it, what matters is the customer experience and what they're paying. George, give our listeners a sense of how successful Payment Sense is. It's, it's, um, most of our listeners are in the United States. So. So uh, w- on a run rate, uh, we process uh, about $8 billion worth of transactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, last 12 months, it's, it's about $6 yeah, billion. But you're growing. So it yeah. shows you the growth rate. Yeah. Um, we have 60,000 customers. We're in uh, Republic of Ireland and the UK, and very shortly uh, going into Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 250 employees mm-hmm. and uh, about 700 uh, self-employed agents that uh, that represent one of three sales channels. Yeah. And it's about a third of our business. Yeah. And all of that's automated. Through a, uh, a an iPad, they have, we've taken the sale process and taken all the difficult bits of calculating uh, margin, doing all all the mm-hmm. anti-money laundering checks through about 40 APIs, we've simplified it to the bare essence of sales. Yeah. And so, again, it's very transformative. Uh, I, I want to underscore, I think, what's generalizable about this experience. Payments processing, there is nothing new about payments processing, right? So the fundamental thing you do is similar to what lots of other people do. You're right. The innovation is in what you've done to your business, to the business process that supports that. 
And I think a lot of entrepreneurs think they have to have a new service offering, a new product offering. That may not be the opportunity. The may op- opportunity may be uh, to look at the process and the business model with a new lens. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's also, if you can work out distribution, and when you talk to startups, usually, and, and especially if there's entrepreneurs in the room, the entrepreneur who's got the, who, who's, who's got the battle scars, the first thing they're thinking is, uh, is distribution. How are you going to reach your market? Mm-hmm. I don't care how great your product mm-hmm. is. How are you going to reach your market? And so uh, it, it's a critical part of everything we've done. And we've used tech to make the distribution simpler. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. When someone goes online and searches on our product, we uh, there's two paths. We, we through let's say it's a Google PPC search. We, we pick up the search term. We have a... a That's just, sorry. So I, one sorry. of my jobs is disambiguate. Okay, so sorry. pay-per-click. Okay. So Ad, click on AdWords. Yeah. Somebody clicks on AdWords. Click, credit credit card processing, right. London. Yeah. Click. Yeah. yeah. So actually it's going to be cheap credit cards or cheap terminal or good service yeah. on yeah. payment. It's yeah. going to be something more descriptive. Yeah. So so that comes in. There's a timestamp. The... the, the Landing page that we served is probably changing daily. We've got wow. we've got uh, landing pages every day. You have a whole number of pages that are uh, the, the 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 winning page up to that point, mm-hmm. and and a, and a and a another page that's competing with it, mm-hmm. and it's a new page. And we're flipping through until we have we're always going up the the ladder, and so it's a it's a it's a very detailed page based on that search term. It's got a unique phone number on it. Mm. And so we tie up the time of day, the, the phone number, to that, that coming in. We look at the CLI, and we have the best database of SMBs in the, U, in the What's UK. What's CLI? Sorry, I don't even uh, know. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Incoming phone line. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and, and so because we know the incoming phone line from the phone system, uh, we pop the record of that customer. Wow. And we've got the full history of every conversation that's ever happened with that customer. Mm-hmm based on that phone number. We tie it up with the search term that came through a different path, and now the salesperson is sitting there with full history of that customer, everything that's ever been said. Every other phone conversation has been recorded and attached to that merchant record. Every SMS, every email is there. Wow. And and now I have about 30 different elements to pricing, and I can move them around. I find out what's important to you. As I change those pricing elements, it recalculates uh, the lifetime value of the customer hmm. based on the churn rate for your profile, based on a whole number of the profitability of uh, the products that were picked. Uh, and I'm basically negotiating as a salesperson. My negoti- I'm getting a cut of the lifetime value. Ah, Simple as that. Interesting. We've gamified the entire thing. Yeah. So when somebody sees that go negative, they're like, thank you very much. Doesn't go ne- it doesn't yeah. go negative. It doesn't yeah. allow them. It's got constraints. Yeah. yeah. So we're always in the money. Uh, we're also not overcharging too much because we'll lose that customer sooner mm-hmm. or later. So within constraints, it's it's totally gamified and plays on on greed and and you know there's there are salespeople who may have to do twice as many deals as the next person to to make the same commission, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Mm-hmm. It confuses the hell out of our competitors. Yeah, they 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 don't know what our pricing strategy yeah. is. It's gamified. Now. 
I, I would never, that's the right way to say this, I, I, I would never bet against the rate of change in an industry. That is, I, they change much slower than I think they, sh- they should. But are you worried at all with the advent of, of, of dramatic alternatives to traditional credit card payment systems, um, mobile payments, WeChat, Alipay, all these alternatives that are emerging, especially outside the U.S. and Europe, are you worried? Uh, no, because uh, for, for a couple, of, one is speed. Mm-hmm. Speed and tech is our uh, is one of our one of the things mm-hmm. we're working on now. It's third generation is to power all the uh, the, the uh, iPad type uh, based uh, payment systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've we've already locked up most of the players in the UK for that. So mm-hmm. we're ahead of the market there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market will uh, will get better. Uh, it, it it hasn't taken off yet. Right. But uh, but we're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the other company, Judo, we are one of the in terms of technology. Yeah. There's n- nothing that comes close. Yeah. Um, uh, it. We're one of the leaders in mobile payments. Yeah. There's there's only three that play in that space. You know, we we only have about a minute left, but can you summarize your thinking? You've you've maintained this strategy of doing something for a while, switching horses, sometimes keeping parallel options going. Give me some thinking about your personal strategy on managing these opportunities. Uh, yeah, it's you know one of the things I've learned over the years is I used to think. Surrounding myself with smart people who work hard, yeah, you get there. Uh, we're actually social animals, and so there's more to it. I've mm-hmm. interviewed over three thousand people mm-hmm. in the last uh, fifteen years, uh, and as with my business partner, and we've we've gotten as as good as we'll probably ever get at picking people. We still get it wrong very mm-hmm. often, but uh, we have CEOs running each of the businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, our office is is a big space. With uh, so, some some decent art and some uh, a a uh, ping pong table and mm-hmm. some good music and but it's you can write on all the walls uh, and the CEOs bring their teams in for very specific purposes and and there's there's no egos we mm-hmm. whiteboard the walls we uh, and that's the model we want to run mm-hmm. uh, I also take off on all school holidays. Uh, you know, this is you know, at some point the future has to arrive as right, well. Right, right. Can't so, always be delayed gratification. <laughs> <laughs> and so it has arrived, and uh, and so you know we're away during every single school yeah. holiday. Uh, uh, but we work very it, hard. Did you make it to Sydney? I didn't, but uh, yeah, we we were. Life we're, is we're, long. We're in, yeah. <laughs> no, but we're in Spain uh, for yeah. the summer. We were in the Maldives just recently. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to be going to Mexico soon. It's it's yeah, it's it's fine. And we have three young kids, so it's it's not as easy. <laughs> All right. Well, remarkably, we're out of time. But th- George, thanks so much for coming in today. It's been a pleasure, Carl. Thank you. All right, so I'm just going to point you to the website. I'm going to give you the the U.S. URL, which redirects to the to the U.K. one. If you just go to PaymentSense.com, you can learn about George's company. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.